What an amazing time to be alive. What an amazing time to be watching the news and having conversations about the news and consuming all kinds of bits and pieces and opinions from hither and thither, like a little bowerbird pecking around the internet and social media, trying to figure out what's true and what's not. But also, what an amazing time to be susceptible and vulnerable to stridency, to misinformation, to whataboutism, to people trying to distract us from what really matters, jangling keys in front of our face in order to get us to look over here instead of remaining stable and calm and even keeled about our own opinions, our own vision of the truth. Now is a moment to reach across aisles, to set aside differences, to have faith in democracy, to have faith in bigger ambitions and bigger things to believe in than just the day-to-day. The only way we can do that is by having conversations that resonate with all of us, conversations that make sense to all of us, conversations that are difficult, conversations that are important, conversations that are, as always, a little bit uncomfortable. Today on the show, a terrific individual, uh, an individual with whom I just wish I'd had more time. That was my only regret because, uh, you know, sometimes you speak with someone and they give uh, very short, carefully thought out answers. Uh, Kathy is not that sort of a person. Uh, Kathy wouldn't do that to you. She wouldn't give you a, a little uh, soundbite. She will go careening off into her own universe of thoughts about something. And, I, you know, I have to uh, use all of my stamina just to get a word in edgeways. Uh, and I use my journalistically... Uh, well approved of technique of interrupting her incessantly to try to get her to shut up about whatever she's talking about and start talking about what I want to talk about, but I don't even want her to talk about what I'm talking about because I'm so intrigued by what she is talking about. That's the kind of vibe of this conversation, which I wanted to have on the basis of her recent uh, article, column, on Arc Digital, uh, which is a sort of a sub-stacky thing. Uh, she writes a weekly newsletter. She's a former uh, Boston Globe columnist, uh, she was a weekly columnist also for the Detroit News. She's written in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. I mean, basically everything, right? And now she, like many people, has gone online. She's a contributing editor at Reason, and you know she'll write occasionally at Quillette and places like that, but it's mostly her own gig now. Anyway, her most recent newsletter was called The Problem with COVID Contrarianism. And it was about this phenomenon in the sort of intellectual dark web, you might say, of people who previously prided themselves on being rationalists, independent thinkers, this loose coalition of people from Sam Harris to, I guess, Joe Rogan, maybe Dave Rubin, uh, Barry Weiss, uh, Majid Nawaz, who ha- have now, I mean, if they ever were a community, they clearly are no longer a community. They are riven with, oh, Brett Weinstein, we mentioned, of course, as well in this conversation. Uh, they have now fallen apart into a set of camps in which there are the people who are still uh, who are still expressing a fealty to reason and independent inquiry in a genuine way, genuinely curious way, from a place of intellectual humility and good conversational faith. And then there is this other cohort of people who have shamelessly sold out and uh, either sh- either either should know better or do know better and are pandering to an audience and captured by their own conspiratorial thinking. Or they're just playing right-wing hacks like Ruben. 
And in that case, it requires an explanation. What has happened? Why is it so hard to maintain independence of thought during a pandemic? Or maybe why is it so hard to maintain independence of thought ever without tumbling down a rabbit hole and being captured by groupthink? Kathy has thoughts about this. She and I, I suppose, have occasionally been sort of perceived of as being adjacent to this community of people that's no longer a community and good riddance to it. Uh, and look, I would have talked to Kathy for, we only had, you know, an hour and 15 minutes or something together. And so I kept trying to hurry her up, but she was so fascinating in talking about her early years growing up in the Soviet Union, which by the way, I think gives her some real insight into the nature of authoritarianism and state power and truth and misinformation. Uh, the, uh, the first half of this chat is just uh, me talking all about <laughs> the Soviet Union. <laughs> so if you get bored of that, just skip forward like half an hour if you want to hear all the, all the COVID-related stuff. Um, stop asking me about Joe Rogan, please. Uh, I, if you are interested in continuing that conversation specifically, make sure you're following me on Twitter, J-O-S-H-Z-E-P-P-S or Z-E-P-P-S. That's an intentional misspelling of the name on Instagram. I'm Josh Zeps, J-O-S-H-S-Z-E-P-S or S-Z-E-P-S, which is the correct spelling of my name. You can also Google an article that I recently wrote in The Australian about this. You can see a recent appearance of mine on The Drum, which is a panel show, which is available if you're in Australia on ABC iView. That was on uh, last Wednesday, if you're listening to this in real time, so a week ago, Wednesday. Uh, I mean, all I will say, if you can't be bothered finding this on other platforms that I've been talking about it on ad nauseum, is this has clearly transitioned from being uh, a a perhaps well-meaning, well-intentioned campaign to try to clean up misinformation online into what it perhaps always secretly was, which is a witch hunt against an individual for on trumped up charges, essentially. Uh, I mean, if you're producing hours and hours and hours and hours of content, and if your whole raison d'etre is to push boundaries and be funny and be a little bit of a bad boy and just shoot the shit with friends and get stoned and smoke cigars, if that's your thing then out of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of content, people are going to be able to find you occasionally stepping up to the line and crossing over that line. And unless you want to live in a world in which that never happens, in which people who do that are not on public mainstream platforms, this whole thing is a a storm in a teacup. I mean... Joe, as I say in this, I, I, believe, I can't even remember, I've done so many, so much about this and been asked about it so much, I can't even remember where I'm saying all this now, but it may be in the conversation you're about to hear where I, I just make the point that he is, he has been tremendously, uh, a tremendous force for good in the entertainment industry to almost everyone I know. I don't know anyone who knows him, who speaks poorly of him. I speak highly of him. He's been good to me. He's given me encouragement. Um... I just don't think we can be holding each other to, you know, the the marquee of Queensbury standards. I mean, do we all have to, is there no space for getting things a little bit messy and getting things a little bit wrong? The misinformation component is being dealt with, uh, you know, by Spotify in ways that Joe seems to condone, like putting warnings on some of the episodes that are the most controversial or it's striving for greater balance by inviting on more mainstream voices, fine. 
But all of this other hoo-ha about stitching together old clips of him saying the N-word or telling racist jokes or being sexist or being intentionally provocative, you know, things that, things that did not cause a stir 10 years ago didn't cause a stir because 10 years ago they were not the same level of transgression as they are today. So to dredge them up and then present them today as if we should hold the person who was doing them 10 years ago to today's standards is incredibly blinkered, incredibly short-sighted. I mean, there are clearly things that we're doing today that in 10 or 20 years' time are going to seem out of step with current norms. I'm sure there are all sorts of things that I'm saying on this show. I mean, I'm sure the casual way in which we abuse animals in concentrated animal feeding operations where the only objective is to lower the price of a pound of their flesh and shave a fraction of a cent off to maximize profits and to make your you know clean washed chicken breast that's sitting there under a fluorescent light in the supermarket as cheap as possible under the cling film that i'm pretty sure in 50 years or 100 years at the most will be considered a barbarism and your children's grandchildren will probably think to themselves, how on earth did people live in that society and not spend every day doing everything they could to dismantle that system, or at the very least, not to be complicit in it? And they might say the same thing about the climate chaos that we're all participating in rendering worse and more expensive to fix and more disruptive to everybody's lives in coming decades. Even if you're not a climate change alarmist and you you know you think people have gone overboard, it's very clear that unless you're doing something really proactive about assisting in getting carbon out of the atmosphere through who you vote for and how you live your life, you are contributing to a scenario that's going to be, at best, very expensive and very disruptive to fix and may lead to unintended consequences like everybody getting just fractionally poorer every year while we have to pour vast resources into fixing this problem after it's too late and great movements of people are are transitioning across South Asia because the monsoons have been disrupted and the rice paddies are no longer providing rice and people are on boats coming down to Australia and all of a sudden you're electing more authoritarian leaders because you have to close the borders. I mean, there's going to be so many knock-on effects from the fact that we're just cavalierly flying and driving and burning so many fossil fuels as we currently are that it will someday be incredible to people that we are paying no attention to it, just as it is currently incredible to us that people in the days of slavery were able to have the cognitive dissonance and walk around thinking they're good people at the same time as they're taking part in a system that is complicit in probably the worst thing that humans have ever done. I use the term slavery very broadly there, obviously. The Holocaust is a, is a close competitor, but that's a form of slavery in itself. So, I mean, all of that is not to really say anything specific about Joe. It's just to say, can we please get a grip? Can we please, like, take a deep breath? Can we please remember the adage of he who is without sin can cast the first stone, people in glass houses, and so on and so forth? You don't have to like him. You don't have to listen to him. But a lot of what's going on now, especially with regard to people's claims about COVID misinformation, is, is bullshit. I mean, I was on a panel show. And you had a bunch of people who were saying that they'd never seen or listened to Joe's show. But they say that they think that it shouldn't be on Spotify because it's spreading 
misinformation and he has blood on his hands. And they cut me off before I could say what I wanted to say, which is, so let me, let me get this straight. We're sitting here talking about a person whose work we're unfamiliar with, whose show we haven't seen or listened to, who operates on a platform that we don't use, and our gripe with him is that he doesn't do his own research. That's rich. Like, cut it out. At this point, unless you want to live in a stale, boring, authoritarian world where everything is fact-checked and every person is constantly second-guessing themselves in their heads about what is about to come out of their mouth, back off. I don't think anybody actually wants to unleash the kind of world in which Joe Rogans don't exist. Oh, but he would not exist. He would just, uh, you know, he would, would just take, remove him from Spotify. And of course they would cease to exist. They would become fringe elements. It would be a warning. It would be a chilling effect. I used to say, thank God Australia was founded by convicts instead of Puritans. And that may still be the case, or maybe we're all just becoming so puritanical that we're getting so far up our own asses. We've lost sight of what it actually means to be generous anymore. And that doesn't mean that you can't criticise Joe Rogan for not being, I don't know, adequately generous towards the minorities who he's made jokes about. But that's not the point right now. The point is what you do about him. And what kind of person it makes you to take one side or other on the censorship debate, which is fundamentally what it is. We can say it's not about free speech, we can say it's not about censorship, but at the end of the day, it's about who do you want making decisions about who can say what in the public square. Because platforms like Spotify and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter are the new public square. Yes, they're private companies and they can do whatever they want, but the reality is if you boot it off them, you are not functioning in our conversation. So who makes the decision? Do the people who listen to the show make the decision about what they want to consume? And do we set the boundaries of public conversation as capaciously as possible because we believe in an old-fashioned, small, liberal idea that the best outcomes come from the maximum amount of debate and dialogue? Or do we outsource our censorship to 22-year-old software engineers in Silicon Valley riding skateboards who are responding to a Twitter mob that's responding to aging rock stars threatening to pull their music off a platform. But enough about me. Follow me on Twitter, follow me on Instagram. Uh, you can Google some of my articles. There'll be some big changes and big opportunities coming. So if you ever don't like a particular episode of this podcast or don't agree with me on something, make sure you are subscribed to the show and at least listen to this first portion of each episode even if you're not interested in the guest because things are going to be rolled out that you will not want to miss in the meantime i hope you enjoy as much as i did this all over the place chat with the one and only kathy young when did you come to the states uh, in 1980, when I was 16 years old, I'm sort of dating myself here. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, um, so yeah, I've been here for quite a while. <laughs> what was that? Li- what was that like? Oh, it was. Uh, it was pretty remarkable. I mean, of course, at the time, this was uh, during the age of communism. So 
Russia was a very close society. I mean, well, I mean, it wasn't close like North Korea because there was a lot of stuff uh, that, I mean, the, 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 the Iron Curtain in some ways was very leaky by then, you know, <laughs> at least when it comes to information. I mean, mm. I remember there were like Western, uh, like there, I, I like at one point there was a copy of Vogue circulating in, oh, wow. uh, in my How soul, salacious. you know, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, so yeah, I mean, it wasn't totally closed, but I mean, certainly, um, uh, and, you know, my parents were sort of closet dissidents who had uh, forbidden literature at home and so on. And, what sort of forbidden uh, literature did uh, was lying around uh, the house Solzhenitsyn, in secret? Oh. Uh, you know, emigre writers, uh, who, uh, and, you know, uh, that sort of stuff that was critical of the Soviet regime. Would you get punished um, for having Solzhenitsyn in the house? Uh, well, I mean, if you got found out, sure. I mean, yeah, because my, my parents were very careful to warn me, and they started being kind of open with me about political stuff when I was around probably 11 or 12, so at a fairly early age. But I do remember being told like very firmly that you're really not supposed to like, tell anyone at school that we talk about this at home or that we have these books. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I was very aware of uh, the fact that it, that political repression was a reality i mean mm. in that era probably like if you got busted for having forbidden books it was more likely that you would lose your job than that you would actually go to prison just right. for that but it was still like best not to take any risks and uh, would you so, lose your yeah. job on a on a pre on some other pretext would they find something to hang yeah. it on so that they didn't have to be up it was officially for because there, there there were at the time there were articles in the soviet criminal code uh that basically penalized uh you know very very broadly defined uh, activity intended to subvert the you know to to subvert the government or to subvert the the uh the state uh mm. so the anything really including literature that was not officially approved could be part of that so uh and and you know the 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 severity with which people got punished for political crimes kind of waxed and waned depending mm. on the climate i mean there were moments when they started to crack down like when uh dissent got a little more outspoken they would start to crack down uh, so yeah, it was very, and that was part of why my family left because things were getting really, in some sense, more unpredictable. And I, I think they were getting more unpredictable because the regime was getting shaky, or you know, because mm. as we know, it collapsed uh, like ten years after we left, which was amazing. Um, it's funny because I remember there there was uh, there was a Soviet dissident named Andrea Malrik who wrote a book, and I think. It was written in like 1970-something, but it was called uh, Will the USSR Survive Until 1984? And of course, he picked the date 1984 because of George Orwell. Right. And at the time, it just seemed like this, you know, very theoretical, very abstract question, kind of like, you know, are we going to travel to other constellations someday? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Like, are yeah. we going to have colonies on Mars? You know? Yeah. And then suddenly, I mean, he was off by like, and unfortunately he didn't live to see the day because he died in a car accident, which still, you know, I, I think to this day among, you know, uh, 
Russians from that generation of dissidents is still being debated whether it was really an accident or not. But uh, uh, he died in, I think, 1979 or something like that. And, uh, you know, he was off, as it turns out, by like six, seven years, depending on what you count as like the official. It's, it's so, it's so funny, Kathy, because when I, when I was in my teens, I became uh, fascinated by political philosophy and by the big, uh, the big sort of different ideologies. And, uh, and this was post uh, the end of the Cold War. But I, I read like Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, and I read like some primers about, uh, about the Soviet Union. I just wanted to understand these big ideological battles that had happened. And one of the books that I've read, had been written in the 80s and it ended with a coda about communism saying there is no foreseeable way that communism will end this is the way that the world is now structured into capitalism and communism so the soviet union is here to stay and i was like man it was only a few years later (laughs) that that it was proven so wildly wrong but it's amazing to parachute into the minds of people in that era and see how it really did seem very very kind of frozen in place at the time and it was very difficult to imagine that it could uh I uh, start liberalizing and, you and so, know, let alone. Sorry, the, were you in, were you in Moscow or were you in the regions? Yeah, I was in Moscow. I actually have a book that was published in 1989 called growing up in Moscow. Cool. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So I actually. And, the, and so do you have, you have memories as a teenager of like Brezhnev and like, so the yeah, pre yeah, opening up pre Perestroika. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you, uh, you know, I should get you a copy of my book because it's, I'd uh, love there's to. a lot of that. And I mean, like we, we, uh, and it's funny again, because it was this very, um kind of repressive regime and everything but at school like we told uh, Brezhnev jokes <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I mean the Brezhnev jokes just usually just depicted as I uh, depicted him as a complete moron like, can you tell was... me a Brezhnev joke do you remember a oh, Brezhnev sure, sure, joke yeah yeah so I mean uh, to be told properly which I'm not going to attempt to do uh you have to like try to convey a speech defect because by that time in a it really wasn't nice to laugh at that, but and apparently it was because he had survived a stroke. But by then, he, he well, you definitely. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know about Soviet authoritarianism, but in the modern woke authoritarianism, you will definitely be cancelled for making fun of. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so the president so jokes. The uh, you, to do it properly, you had to imitate the slurred speech. But I'm not even going to try to do that, especially since <laughs> it isn't nice, you know. But anyway, so yeah. So one of the jokes, for instance, is that. Um, uh, Brezhnev, um, you know, leaves his apartments for a, for a Politburo meeting in the morning, and um, uh, you know he puts on the shoes that his housekeeper puts out for him, and um, uh, you know he gets to uh, to the Politburo meeting, and somebody says, "Oh, Leonid Ilyich, uh, you're wearing like one black shoe and one brown." And he says, "Oh well, I'm gonna go back to the uh, uh, to, to the apartment and change." And oh, I actually I, I flubbed one detail, which is that his housekeeper puts up, puts out two pairs of shoes for him to choose from. So he puts on you know one black and one brown. So he he gets to the Politburo meeting, and somebody says, uh, "You know, you're wearing one black shoe and one brown." And he says, "Oh well, I'm gonna go home and change right now." So he goes back to his apartment. And then he comes back to the uh, Politburo um, conference room, still in one black shoe and one brown. 
And he says, you know, I really don't understand what's going on. Like, I went home, and it's the same thing over there. One black shoe and one brown. I don't you know? get it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, it's much less yeah. political than I thought it was going to be. I thought no, I was it's just not waiting, political. No, I as I said, I mean, some, most like, of the Brezhnev jokes were really, really just sophisticated, about like <laughs> anti-communist. No, most of the Brezhnev jokes were really just about depicting him as a moron. You know? And <laughs> Got it. Uh, it, and there, there was another one because he was always like reading these very long speeches from a piece of paper, and he was reading them in a kind of expressionless, flat way, you know. And right. all of these speeches were pre-written; they didn't have teleprompters, so he would just very obviously read from a paper. Uh, so one joke was that um you know Brezhnev goes to a meeting and you know delivers this long like interminable speech and then after he gets home from the meeting he um calls in his uh, secretary uh who is also a speechwriter and says hey you know what's going on i wanted a speech i told you i wanted a speech 15 minutes long and and that must have gone on for like at least 45 minutes and the secretary says oh but leonid Ilyich, i gave you three copies <laughs> so yeah That's those true. were like this that was the general is, run of president jokes right, some of them were is, more overtly political like, yeah that, well that is these... that is sort of political that is yeah, just subversively political. political in the sense that yeah, it's not yeah. just that he's stupid i mean i remember that, that there was no also content all these jokes to about, the like, yeah, yeah, there the were all these jokes world. like, you know, Brezhnev, uh, Nixon, that this was back when Nixon was uh, uh, was the, was president. So it was Brezhnev, Nixon, and whoever the French leader at the time was, I think it was Mitterrand. But yeah, I think it was Brezhnev, Nixon, and Jaskar just staying going to a bar. Oh. That was sort of, the, you know, it was a setup for many, many jokes. I love uh, it. So when you got to the States, what was your, for a start, very quickly, how did your parents get out? Uh, and what were your impressions on arriving in the States? Where did you, where did you go to initially? Uh, to New York. Uh, and my parents got out. This was when uh, Soviet Jews were sort of emigrating en masse. This was when the Jackson-Bannock Amendment was uh, was in force, where the Soviet Union had to allow the, uh, you know, uh, uh, allow emigration for a certain number of groups mainly Jews, but there were also other sort of marginalized groups, as we would say today, like Pentecostal Christians who were persecuted and um, like a few other groups. Uh, so they had to permit uh, the immigration of a certain uh, number of people in order to receive like most favored nation trading status. So, um, you know, Soviet Jews were allowed to emigrate as part of that. Um, officially, uh, I think we were supposed to emigrate to Israel. Um, the, the procedure at the time was that when you got to Vienna, which was the first stop uh, sort of outside uh, the, the USSR, you um, uh, spoke to some you know, people from refugee assistance agencies because officially we're classified as refugees. Uh, you know, which sounds much more dramatic than it actually was. I mean, we were not like <laughs> fleeing a war or anything like that. But, you know, we did really have to leave behind. Um, uh, like, I mean, you know, obviously we were able to take luggage with us, but mm. uh, uh, there were like they, they only allowed you, for instance, to take out a very small amount of money. So you really kind of have to start over with, with pretty much nothing. Um so yeah, once you got to Vienna, you got a choice of 
you know, where you wanted to apply for a visa. And we were, I, I think the majority of Soviet Jews who were emigrating at the time were going to the U.S. Uh, so that's how we got out. We uh, spent, um, I think, like three or four months in Italy, which was another official kind of way station, uh, waiting for a visa to the U.S. So we got here on uh, July 1st, 1980. Yeah, you know, four days later, it was the 4th of July, and we were kind of freaked out by the fireworks. I mean, you know, it was like, what? What's going on? You what know? are these bombs exploding in the sky? For yeah, fun. yeah, like, is this a revolution? <laughs> <laughs> no fireworks in uh, in the Soviet Union. Oh, there were fireworks, yeah. But, I mean, we weren't uh, used to, like, people shooting their own, like, you know, privately owned fireworks, so it was just right. this- thing of firework going up everywhere was kind of right anyway, yeah. yeah so the thing that was really i think the most overwhelming and again i'm probably not saying anything here that people haven't already said like a hundred times uh was just the sheer abundance of consumer goods and uh um and that of course I, I, the, the, our first experience of that was obviously in vienna just the experience of going into a store and seeing like you know mm. uh seeing all this stuff um uh was really really remarkable because what was uh, there in moscow i mean i i appreciate the sense of there being a massive overabundance of consumer goods even when i go to the united states today from oh, australia yeah, yeah. or western europe in the sense that you know the supermarket in australia will have 15 different types of breakfast cereal and in the states it'll just be aisle after aisle after aisle of hundreds and hundreds of like yeah, rainbow yeah. flavored fruit loops there'll be banana and cherry flavored right, fruit right, loops they'll be right. like you know, and i'm like really do we need all this so i feel like I'm coming from a Soviet, you know, uh, Soviet yeah, state no, when I Soviet moved from Union, Vienna to the States. Uh, at the time, this was like, this was the era of the food lines. And uh, this was when um, it was pretty normal, like, to get to a supermarket and uh, there would be, like, maybe one type of cheese available, like, uh, the, the, the butter you know, uh, mm. depending on whether it was a good day or not. I mean, I remember, like, I can tell you that when I was, uh, it, this was not long before we left. I was probably 16. Like, I went to, like, my mom asked me to go to the supermarket and, you know, just get some basic stuff. So, um, for instance, like, all the milk cartons were leaky, like, every single one. I spent a long time trying to find a milk they carton. They still are, Kathy. Leaky. They still are. Those that stupid design still doesn't work for me. I always end up half the time ah, with a little they, bit of they, milk they, in the bottom of my the milk tray. They, they had the, these. I still remember them. They had these triangular milk cartons, and they were always leaking. So yeah. Anyway. <laughs> and so, how? Yeah, and were you were buying leaking, things? Leaking milk cartons. Were you buying yeah, things I, with state issued like food vouchers, or did you have was money? No, no, no. There was money. There was, money. There was no. The state issued food vouchers. I think was mainly like during the World War Two, uh, but. Uh, um, oh, I think during Stalinism and the the yeah, yeah, in the Cold yeah. War, there was that was the main way that you bought milk and eggs, wasn't it? I think only during the war they did oh, have. Okay. Uh, yeah, there was money, so you know. Uh, well, you're the one from the country, so I suppose yeah, I should yield so, to your authority so, on that. Yeah. So, point. but the thing that I remember most uh, from that shopping trip 
is that like all of a sudden there is this crush of humanity like there is a stampede like rushing past me and i actually got caught in this crowd and i got a button torn off my coat and i was like what what's going on and apparently they had brought out butter like people had been waiting for word that butter was going to be like brought out on the shelves and i got caught in the butter stampede (laughs) you know there is something you really can't relate to and i mean it was very difficult for instance like uh uh bananas for instance were like this incredible rarity and i'm like you know like today i'm like oh well you know i have some bananas but they're kind of spotty i'm gonna throw this out (laughs) you know (laughs) Uh, you know in the soviet union you you could literally like people would stand in line like for two hours to get bananas oh i know and i'm I'm like are they really that good you know (laughs) would i stand in line for two hours today to get a banana no well people stand in line for two days to get a new iphone which is almost exactly the same as the previous iphone so i suppose we all have our bananas our soviet bananas yeah 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 um kathy i'm just looking at the uh at the ration uh, and coupon system in the soviet union i think you might have missed it by leaving uh uh, too early. It's not earlier. It's late. Oh, Apparently yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, after, right, onwards, right. Uh, no, no, after my time, yes. Using coupons. Yeah. Yeah, so no, because that, there was a period of time after we left when things got really bad and they were getting worse, uh, you know, when we were when we were leaving. Yeah, and, right. So uh, I'm that, that was that among the things also, of. by the way, that sort of induced my, my parents to to take the leap. I mean, not that they didn't primarily like hate the political system, but it was also the fact that things were getting worse and worse in terms of like food availability. And, sure. And and that was in Moscow, by the way, because um outside of Moscow, oh my god, like we uh at one point before we left, we decided that we, well, my parents primarily decided because I was 16, uh, decided that they wanted to go and see some of the, like, the, 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 there's a bunch of uh, old towns, uh, like, within probably a 200-mile uh, radius of Moscow. Uh, or maybe even a hundred miles, uh, w- with a lot of like medieval architecture, which was by the, at the time, by the way, in really horrible shape. But you know that aside, they were these really, really beautiful. Uh, like old Russian towns. So my parents decided that, you know, before we leave, you know, we really want to go see those. Uh, but this was like, this was outside of Moscow and my God, like the, 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 um, the, the living standards and the the, the mm. availability of food because oh my god like we at one point we literally went into a shop that had complete like a food store that had completely empty shelves except for like a stack of boxes of fudge candy <laughs> and i mean the fudge candy was actually kind of good but you know you really can't live on fudge. i love that you rock up you rock up for your butter and bananas and you yeah, end up and, just walking and, out with know, a basket and, and my, my fudge mom candy. Uh, and there was a saleswoman because you know somebody had to be there on staff and um you know in case somebody wanted to buy the fudge candy and my mom asked if they were expecting like any food to come in and she was like ha well you know if you want to buy food you will actually have to like line up outside the store at uh, six o'clock in the morning yeah and because by the time the store will open at eight you know people will just pick everything clean right away and Mm. so it was just it was completely insane and uh, a lot of people from outside moscow and my mom ran into this uh when when she did food shopping and she 
was mainly wanted to do food shopping. But, uh, you know, people from outside Moscow used to travel on weekends, especially, or, you know, retired people who weren't working during the day used to get on the suburban train and go to Moscow to buy food. And then um, people would like when when people standing in line for food kind of detected the fact that somebody was from out of town who came in to do food shopping, they were often like really, really nasty to them. Like, oh, like you people come in from out of town and right. you know, pick everything clean and then there's not enough left for us. You know? Right. And, it's like anti-immigrants. And, yeah, so it was today. just very, very dog eat dog, which is kind of funny because like the idea that people have of socialism breeding, you know, human solidarity and no, 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 no not at all. But <laughs> humans, yeah, actually, humans and uh, so, sorry, just to finish the finish that point. So, I mean, this is uh, this is all fascinating to me, but I want to get onto the present day as well. But it, so, it, uh, yeah, from 1983 onwards, there were these coloured coupons that everyone would use to go yeah, and buy. No, and there'd be right, a coupon for right. sugar, a coupon for kerosene, a coupon for this. And uh, there's a there's a, a joke that where the, the little boy asks his mum, "Where is where's Papa?" And she says, "He's standing in line to get coupons for coupons." Oh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> lastly, just funny. to clean up the – so the French uh, – this is just aligning all of the – in case people are wondering, uh, the French president in 1980, as you say, was Destin, and then Mitterrand was from 1981 onwards. Uh, so uh, oh, yeah, that, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And, all um, that's tidied up. Who, and, who but, would it have been in, like, 1972, 73? Because I remember that there were these – like, before Watergate, there were these, uh, you know, Brezhnev, Nixon, and – you know, French president. Who, Let me have a look. French president. This thing was uh, seventy-four to eighty-one, uh, ah. preceded by Pompidou. Ah, okay. So some of it must have been Pompidou, but I definitely remember a lot of like, yeah, I think it was. And, yeah, Pompidou was yeah. sixty-nine to seventy-four. Yeah, and then and I think it was goal. like. And then it was Brezhnev, Ford, and and Jaskarta Stang. I remember those. Yeah. Amazing. So that's well. Now you've made me desperately want to read your first book, which I didn't even know about. I'm embarrassed to say. Growing up in Moscow, I know about your second book, which uh, was published uh, in 2000 or thereabouts. Uh, yeah, 1999 about, ceasefire. Yeah. Yeah, about that's right. About issue. feminism and uh, and and yeah and equality and now you write wonderful pieces uh about well what do, how do you describe what you write about because i mean i think it's broadly in the scope of the cultural oh my wars, goodness because i think you're... it's well i guess it could be broadly defined as culture wars i guess and culture you, you, i mean your recent pe- i've we've sort of been circling each other on social media for uh, yeah. for a long time and i've been aware of you and i'm so glad that we could talk now because your latest piece aligns perfectly with the firestorm that i've been in, get involved in, oh, uh, the, right, in, the, right. in the month since doing yeah because i heard bits from your uh, joe rogan appearance yeah um, and your, your latest piece is called the problem with covid contrarianism the you know the 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 battle that i had been fighting for much of last year was against this this narrative that had become so so entrenched in the United States, uh, especially among oh, the, you mean the right that wing. Australia has like become one well, yeah, that Australia has camp or something. Yeah, well, a a a concentration camp, and also b that the that when governments implement these things, you can never claw them back. That like this, you know, it'll start as a as you know as a quarantine hotel for people who are coming in from abroad, but soon enough the government will be locking up political dissidents and, you know, the the border will never reopen. And, like, the fact that on February 21st the border will, will reopen to everybody around the world and that emergency powers are taken in democracies in times of emergency and then relinquished 
in when the emergency right. ends it seems to be like just beyond belief for people who are so obsessed with their own libertarianism that they think the state can only ever be fascistic or authoritarian anyway there they can they can see what yeah, and you know I'll, I'll tell you one thing that i find really funny like looking at the um at the commentary from those political quarters it's like you get all these contradictory narratives like one moment it's oh well look all those countries are reopening you know therefore there's absolutely no reason to you know close anything down and all those restrictions are stupid and then in the same breath it's like well how can you allow governments to impose those restrictions they will never lift them you know it's like yeah there's a bit of a disconnect there i don't understand how I don't know if people are stupid, stupid, or just haven't thought it through. But like one no, of the it's called motivated things- reasoning. Motivated reasoning yeah. is what it is. I saw a graph, Kathy, that someone had sent. Thought they thought they were really owning me by sending a graph of Australian uh, COVID cases since the beginning of the pandemic, and it it bumped along, you know, sort of at all at close to zero up until November of 2021. And they had put arrows in where all of the lockdowns had happened. And it was like lockdown, 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 lockdown. And then the the arrow goes right up in uh, after November of 2020, uh, 2021. The graph, graph goes shooting skyward with COVID infections. And they say, you know, Australia thought its lockdowns had, had worked, uh, you know, based on the quote-unquote science. Um, but where's your science now or something? And I was like... That's because we ended the lockdowns, opened the border, and allowed COVID in. Like, that was the plan. That The plan was get everyone vaccinated, get ready, and then when it's when we're ready, then, of course, we're going to have to join the rest of the world, not we oh, remain yeah. in lockdown forever. Like, does this person think that we thought that we were going to stay in a state of emergency lockdown forever? That Who... Like, just like think for one second about what the even the stated purpose of the lockdowns originally was, which was to flatten the curve on hospitals, potentially wait for a vaccine. Like the graph shows the exact opposite of what the person who's posting the graph thinks it does. It shows that the lockdowns worked, 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 and then there were no more lockdowns and the COVID cases went up due to like, I don't even know what they think that it's proving. Anyway, let's talk about this whole area because you you I think you've got an insightful position to come from because you're not of you and I both are not of the establishment. We don't want to just be spouting whatever the authorities tell us to spout mindlessly. We're both quite anti uh, authority and anti establishment in some ways, but we're worried about the way that that has bled in the alternative media universe into a certain level of crazy. And I don't know what to make of it, but maybe you do. I mean, I do think that to some extent, uh, we've all been a little kind of unsettled and, you know, by the pandemic. And I think everyone may have gone a little crazy, you know, sometimes. Um, but no, seriously, like there has been so much um, uh, just complete weirdness, you know, from people that I really didn't expect it from, like, you know, Majid Nawaz, who I had a lot of respect for. That was so disappointing. And, like, suddenly this guy is spouting these completely bizarre conspiracy theories about, you know, like the whole COVID-19 thing is just engineered to, you know, institute the new world order or whatever, you know, a global uh, surveillance state. 
I mean, seriously, it's it's so bizarre. And I mean, the 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 the, uh, the thing that is even more irrational, though, is people. Uh, and you know, again, I, I I've seen people whom I consider to be sort of rational, you know, basically saying that, oh well, you know, this whole thing was just you know ginned up uh, to undermine Trump and keep him from getting reelected, right? So like the whole world, like the whole world was so committed to like uh, you know preventing Trump from being reelected that like they completely upended the global economy. Yeah, I mean, and I'm glad you say the whole world, Kathy, because one thing that one notices from outside the US is how parochial so much of the squabbles are in, I mean, the US tends to superimpose its own uh, domestic concerns onto the rest of the world. You know, the the American racial struggles between African Americans and white Americans become a proxy for every single struggle all around the world. So you find, you know... I don't know. Yeah, French, and, but African, you know, the French thing that amazes me, though, is that a lot of countries right now are really are sort of, you know, imitating more trend that, like, the activists in a lot of other countries are transplanting to their own soil, sometimes in very incongruous ways. Yeah. There's American racial categories, and I think that's a very bizarre development. It's, yeah, I mean, social media makes it easy to yeah, sort of join yeah. the good, what you perceive as being the good fight. But, uh, I mean, so I've, we've always, I've always, as a, as a, as a sometime U.S. resident and sometimes non-U.S. resident, and even when I was a U.S. resident, obviously being an outsider in that country, even though I've spent the majority of my professional life, of my adult life, life in New York, uh, the, the the experience was always one of sort of noticing this cultural behemoth that was su- had exerted such gravitational pull on its own residents that they sort of could not see out beyond. It's almost like you're living inside a dome when you're in America uh, and you yeah. almost can't quite see out through the dome to the rest of the world. Everything out there becomes just an apparition, which is a projection of your own uh, internecine squabbles and and now and as you say that's that's now getting exported almost willingly to people around the world but the covid thing is is interesting because you know the people will will constantly talk to me about like the vaccine adverse reaction uh, uh, schedule in the states and how unreliable it is so there might actually be m- many more adverse reactions to vaccines than are than on on the official record and I'm like well, maybe in one country, right. there are, you know, over 100 countries that have active vaccine programs. And they're not all just, I mean, it's not all Senegal. Like a lot of those countries oh, have yeah, yeah. have really, really robust public health systems and right. good data collection. So you can say what you want yeah, about I mean, the American vaccines. The idea, the idea that in today's world, like with the social media that we have, like with the amount of uh, just you know transparency uh, that exists today, where you know any anyone can very easily you know anyone armed with a cell phone can easily become a whistleblower. That you could have this massive cover up of uh, you know adverse reactions. Uh, I mean that is really just bizarre. And yeah, and I mean it's not even in the interests of of many powerful people for there to be such a cover up. Like the you know oh, the yeah, heads of yeah. hospital systems are not going to be in cahoots with the drug companies. They're gonna right, they want right. to make money in other ways. Anyway, yeah, but one... it's just but this this whole like the whole COVID conspiracy thing doesn't make really any sense whatsoever because. You know who would benefit from this? Like, if the the idea that this was engineered, you know, by governments, like, 
what exactly like how would governments benefit from well, having I think people the theory sit is, at home doing nothing? You know? Well, I, no, I think I think the theory is that if you're a proto-fascist, if you if you want to if you want a new Soviet Union and you want a population to be cowed, uh, and then maybe this is the way to 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 frighten people into. Be, becoming obedient and once you've broken their spirit then like you can do other things and they'll go along I like cheap i think that's the the argument there's just no i mean there's a there's no evidence that the vaccine that the virus was created artificially even if you believe in the lab leak hypothesis yeah, then yeah. it doesn't it doesn't yeah, matter, and I'm not you know, sure clearly a natural i do think that you know the lab leak story certainly does i mean th- 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 there's a kind of consensus among the sort of dissident you know the, the 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 dissident thinkers so to speak like the people who are you know vaguely intellectual dark web adjacent mm. uh, there is a kind of consensus that oh well the lab, lab leaks theory by now is like just fully vindicated from what i can see i don't think it is i mean i think it definitely has much more support today than it had before but I don't think it's the consensus in mainstream No, it's science. not. No, I mean the the I'm I'm agnostic about it. I think it's entirely yeah, possible. Yeah. But but the but most infectious disease experts uh, who I've spoken to who are not you know they're not beholden they're not kowtowing to China they're not getting money from right, Beijing right. they're not part of you know the WHO with political uh, sort of a, a political need to pander to to geopolitics they just think it's probably more likely that it just that it just yeah. emerged naturally but sure it's entirely possible that it yeah, that, yeah, that, that they were doing that research maybe initially, in I think the media were a little too uh, you know quick to yeah you know, absolutely to uh, dismiss it out of hand and I think that did make them look bad although you know you kind of have to be careful because when you when you go back and look at some of the media accounts that have been cited as oh you know like here are people just mocking and you know completely dismissing the lab leak theory when you look closely it turns out that what they were actually referring to in those stories was not the lab leak theory per se but like claims that the virus was deliberately engineered by the chinese regime yes. as a bioweapon yes. so there's a difference i right. mean you often really have to like uh, you know kind of closely parse exactly what people are talking about because i have seen a lot of claims that claims like that like that really fall apart when you subject them to a little scrutiny i I did a piece um uh for the bulwark um when did i do this was probably like last february uh there was a flurry of um articles and you know comments on the right uh basically saying oh well it's actually the mainstream media that initially uh like completely dismissed covid as any kind of threat and you know said it was just the flu and then people started pinning this on trump so it's like again like everyone is being horribly unfair to trump and you know blah 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 and you know trump never said it was a hoax yeah when you look i actually went back and like looked at some of the early media coverage and it's completely like not i mean there there were yeah there were a few articles and I think those articles were rooted primarily, like at one point, I think the Kaiser Family Foundation 
put out a press release like this was late January of 2020, which, you know, in retrospect, of course, it looks very bad, uh, basically saying like, oh, you know, we're all worried about COVID, but we really should be more worried about the upcoming flu season. And mm. I think the, the reason, like, even for that press release was not so much to be dismissive of COVID, it was to, like, do a flu vaccination drive, because they were trying to, like you know, get more people to get vaccinated for the flu. And I think that was the unfortunate angle that they chose. So a few media outlets kind of picked up on that and then, and, and, uh, you know, ran stories basically saying, oh, you know, like people are worried about COVID, but we should really be more worried about the flu. But, you know, the thing is, though, if you look at the overall gist of the media coverage, there were already, like in late January, there were quite a few stories that said, you know, this is a serious problem. And, you know, it may very well become a serious problem in the U.S. So, I mean, this was really by no means like uniformly dismissive media coverage. And, you know, you can find like, again, early on, like in February of 2020, there was like a ton of, um, you know, items in the right-wing media, the, the, you know, the Rush Limbaugh show and the radio and, you know, the Laura Ingram on Fox, uh, there was this narrative that was already taking shape, that the Democrats and the media are, you know, overhyping this COVID mm. thing, you know, in order to uh, undermine Trump's chances for re-election. Uh, by mm. accusing him of mishandling COVID. So that was like, that was uh, the, this whole uh, attitude that, oh, you know, this whole COVID thing is so much hype. That was, a, you know, that was a right wing narrative from very early on. So, you know, people rewriting history really doesn't uh, sit right. well with me. Yeah. Like, and I mean, that, that that's also consistent with what we were just saying about the Americanization of, or rather, you know, the superimposition by Americans oh, of the yeah, American yeah. experience onto the entire globe. Like the idea that a global pandemic would be engineered in some way or reacted to in some way specifically for American electoral purposes. Is yeah. And I've actually, peculiar. you know, I've everyone was freaking out about it all over the world. That... Oh yeah. Sorry. I was going to point out like one of the countries that had the most kind of hawkish response to COVID was Israel under Netanyahu, who was right. know, one of Trump's closest allies. And I've actually said this to people. So, I mean, like, do you think that Netanyahu like engineered this, uh, you know, this really, really strong response to COVID? It didn't work out they so had well a really harsh lockdown. I mean, do yeah, you think it didn't, didn't work out well for him. Well, also, I mean, Australia had a centre-right uh, government that was very harsh. Oh, yeah, yeah. New Zealand had a centre-left government that was very harsh. Taiwan went hard. Singapore went hard. South Korea went hard. Like, was that all because of American electoral politics? It, yeah, like, no, it, I mean, that's just... Open your bloody mind. Like, you yeah, know, no, think, about, think outside your bubble. I mean, the one thing that I think is worth conceding is one is a point that you make in your last piece, uh, which is I had not actually realised, coming from a country that, for all of its faults in, you know, having had examples of police overreach and police brutality in enforcing sometimes arcane rules about uh, COVID zero uh, strategies, perhaps after they were were useful. With that as a caveat, I would say that Australia has broadly been scientific in the rules that it's imposed and has tried, at least in the in the largest state, New South Wales, to to take uh to to do lockdowns in a way that actually makes sense epidemiologically and then to withdraw them as soon as they're no longer needed i wasn't real i didn't realize that like i was watching bill maher and he said that he hasn't been into his office in two years i mean 
most people I know are back in the in their offices in Sydney. And mm. you, I mean, in terms of schools, schools have basically been open in Australia the entire time with right, a few right. a few changes. Children aren't wearing masks. We're not forcing, like I see videos of, you know, toddlers being forced to wear masks in American schools. There are some jurisdictions in America, some people outside the States might not know this. There are some jurisdictions where kids basically haven't been to school for two years and still aren't. And no, no, the ones crazy. who do go no, are I, still I having to wear, to wear masks. And so I understand that if, you know, if I was an American and I heard an Australian saying that being tough on COVID is a good strategy, in my mind, I might think that that Australian is saying that he supports school closures, masking of children, uh, endless COVID theater at restaurants and, uh, you know, oh, and, yeah, and yeah, airports, yeah. Uh, hypocrisy from our leaders like Gavin Newsom going to the French Laundry and Boris Johnson holding parties and so on. So I, I, again, I think this is confusing things because the culture, the the culture warriors on the anti-COVID lockdown side, definitely have some points in America. It's just not the point that they think they're making when they impose those points on the experience of other countries. Oh yeah, yeah, no, definitely. The the strongest argument I think from the anti hawk side is that the school closures really were completely misguided. And I mean, the school closures, I think, it was especially um, kind of ironic in a in an almost tragic way for progressives to uh, to to really strongly line up behind these school closures. Because, like, the number one priority in these past few years has been racial inequality. And there's data showing racial gaps in, uh, you know, performance on, on various academic tests uh, really have grown wider since the beginning of the pandemic. And, um, you know, this is primarily because you have in the minority populations, you know, Black and and, uh, Latino, you have a lot of people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds where, you know, the parents are, you know, really do not have the resources to supervise their kids' homework very closely, uh, to make sure that they're doing the Zoom lessons and so on and so forth, and just really to almost homeschool them to to, to some extent. Uh, so, you know, what you have is a situation that really, like the whole distance learning situation, really, uh, I mean, this is where, I mean, I often bristle at the overuse of the word privilege, but, you know, this is a situation that really does empower the privilege privileged more and, you know, further marginalize the disadvantaged where, you know, these disadvantaged kids really find themselves, you know, deprived of the school resources that were their best opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, to close those gaps. And, uh, and that's really tragic. So I think mm. it's very true that like, the, and I mean, the teachers unions, uh, this is hugely ironic because teachers unions in America are like a, a mainstay of progressive ideology and they're always trying to push these you know curricula in schools you know teaching about privilege and this and that and the other and you know and here they are like resisting tooth and nail uh in some areas the reopening of schools and perpetuating a situation that really does you know hit the disadvantaged hardest so Mm. you know and i think there's certainly that that is something that you know, canons should be pointed out, and the and the progressives should absolutely be hammered on this. 
but, you know, instead of uh, zeroing in on these very valid issues, uh, you have a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of people on the right or, you know, even the center right to some extent, um, kind of embracing these narratives that are to some extent kind of like dismissive of the whole COVID situation and kind of, you know, this whole, eh, you know, it's really not such a big deal. And, you know, the, 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 the panic is really much worse than the, the disease itself. No, it's not, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that is, uh, that is kind of dispiriting. And, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I, I think you, probably saw that in my piece, which, you know, we should probably mention to your audience that it's in a uh, um, kind of an online Substack magazine called Arc Digital, which you can find at arcdigital, A-R-C, digital.media. It's in Substack. uh, And I have a sort of, you know, newsletter that exists as part of the magazine. Yeah, it's Uh, great. People should should read that. is on is on COVID contrarianism and its dangers, and one of the people that I sort of critique is Barry Weiss, who whom I like, you know, who I sort of generally consider a sort of ally in the culture wars. I mean, I think she's done some great stuff. I think her Substack newsletter has a lot of great material, and I think you've been part of one of her roundtables, right? Mm, yeah, well, she yeah, she invited me to write a, a piece about uh, vaccine mandates, and yeah, uh, yeah, I remember that. And that yeah, was my general, I think she did a good job of you know rounding up different views, and I can understand you know that mandates are controversial. I mean, I don't you know when it comes right down to it, you know, I the, this is like the libertarian and me really kicking in. I mean, I do think that the 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 government mandates like for everyone to be vaccinated are really a step too far. Yeah, uh, me too. I mean I, I mean, I don't I don't believe in a universal mandate where everybody right, has right. to get has to right. get vaccinated. But but my yeah, point exactly. was that that there sh- that I was talking about things like a, a vaccine re- requirement to go into indoor dining or to go to nightclubs or something like that, or for certain right. professions like. Like uh, if you're going to be a cop or a t- or a teacher or or a nurse or a doctor, um, and oh, my point yeah, was basically it was basically absolutely. the, the Trillian. Uh, I mean, I know that you're supposed to be asking me questions, but what do you think of the whole trucker uh, thing? Because I don't well, really I, see like I don't have a problem with saying you know if you're if you're a Canadian trucker who's making runs to the United States, you should show proof of vaccination to well to i'm not sure so so, so but but i mean i think yeah i've been asked about this online and for people who don't know the story the fact is that that if you're that if you're a truck driver then you have to be vaccinated to cross the border to come into the u.s i mean is that is that am i understanding yeah, that right yeah. so there's a big protest in canada but i i mean my my general take is that it's a ridiculous rule because america has never taken covid seriously domestically it's had one of the worst performances in terms of the rampant spread of infection and the and the the scale of disease and death and so it's a little bit i just think it's a bit rich for america to have any rules about people coming in unvaccinated or COVID oh, no, positive. this is actually so, a canadian rule this is oh, not is it a America. Canadian rule? So they're not allowed. I to think come America back. also come adopted back? that rule recently, but the but no, and uh, originally it was a Canadian rule because basically the Canadians uh, imposed a rule for their well, both for American truck drivers coming in, but I think primarily it was for 
Canadian truck drivers who made runs to the United States. And they basically said, you know, if you're making a run to the U.S. and you're coming back, you know, you need to show proof of vaccination. Oh, I see. Because the way that it was framed for me by someone online was saying, do you think that truck drivers should be allowed to enter the United States if they're unvaccinated? And my point was just, well, everyone should be allowed to. I mean, I think it's ridiculous that I, when I entered the States a few weeks ago, had to get uh, a negative test. Uh, I guess I didn't need to. Did I need to show I was vaccinated? I can't remember. I crossed so many borders. I don't remember all the rules. But I think it's a little bit rich for America to be insisting that everybody who comes in be COVID uh, negative right. when there's been no serious attempt to do anything real serious at a federal level or a border level about the, the pathogen yeah. in the first place. Um, if it's a Canadian thing, uh, then I would have to think about it. And I guess it would depend on the epidemiology of what the right. outbreak was like. I mean, if there's a massive outbreak in Detroit or... Yeah. You know Albany, or I, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, because I think Michigan has always had a, had pretty bad COVID numbers. I think. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Um, yeah. I mean, on so the other I hand, know. then I, I feel mean, like maybe it's Omicron, rational. Omicron or, I is mean, also... at the very least, I really don't. This is the kind of thing that I really find it difficult to see as some sort of like outrageous government overreach i mean you know there i mean even i mean, I, I know that there are libertarians who are like compl- for a, like completely open or you know non-existent borders but i mean that's a bridge too far mm. for me, i know? mean i i understand and that if you like, do some believe people... in some amount of border controls then i think it's entirely sensible to to say that you know we can decide that and i mean canada has generally done a much better job than the u.s of containing the virus yeah so i can sort of see them saying well you know we don't really want people coming in from america you know bringing this also i mean if you live in a jurisdiction and there are some canadian jurisdictions that are very strict if you live in a jurisdiction that's gonna opt for you know strict lockdowns when when uh epidemics get out of control then it's a bit unfair for other people to be recklessly you know, not doing the absolute minimum that they could do, which is to get vaccinated, to lower their chance of getting sick and being infectious. Like if, you know, why should why should someone impose that cost on the rest of society by increasing the chance that there's going to have to be a lockdown? Yeah. On the other hand, I then think Omicron is so infectious that vaccines, uh, you know, even if everyone's vaccinated, it's not doing a terribly good job of stopping right. the spread of the infection. It's doing a great job of keeping people out of hospital, but it's not doing a great job of spreading infection. So then are you just, you know, are we sort of using Delta tools to fight Omicron? Are we fighting the last yeah, battle? I, I mean, but why you, you mentioned that you're, so the, the, the way that you open your, your piece that, uh, the, your most recent piece in Arc Digital is talking about how you think there's a, a new battle of the pandemic breaking out, and and you cite the Spotify controversy over Joe Rogan and COVID misinformation on. Yeah, well, the there's a new battle every day. Almost. There's always, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and I mean, my 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 basic point, and, and I mean, I think the Joe Rogan situation is, is is very complicated, and now they're also going after him with this, uh, you know, old uh, like racial stuff from the old uh, episodes that he did, and it really does at this point, I think, look like a witch hunt. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm certainly not like in favor of uh, booting him from Spotify. Um. So, you know, but my, my point and the thing that I was concerned about, and this is also where my criticism of Barry Weiss comes in, I mean, I think there really is uh, in certain, I guess what I would call sort of dissident circles and dissident with regard to the kind of mainstream uh, progressivism that seems to be the dominant 
like strain of uh, thought in most uh, center-left American media today. Uh, and, and then you have this sort of dissent from the mainstream that's exemplified by people like Barry Weiss, uh, for instance, or, you know, or Joe Rogan. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I think that this dissent is absolutely good and essential to a healthy dialogue, you know, because I, I do think that there's a tremendous amount of groupthink and um, kind of knee-jerk uh, political, you know, dogma in the American media right now. And, and I absolutely welcome the sort of dissent and, and the debate. But the sort of rejection of conventional wisdom can become a knee-jerk contrarianism. And that's what I was writing about, uh, where suddenly like people are sort of embracing... Uh, I guess, non-mainstream ideas about COVID uh, really just because they're non-mainstream and really because there's this assumption that, oh, well, anything mainstream is really just the establishment trying to force its dogma down your throat. Mm. And uh, that is really just not the case with COVID, I think. And, and I think we have seen that this contrarianism it really is leading people to embrace uh, not only really bizarre conspiracy theories, and I think if you look at James Lindsay, uh, you know, that's just a, you know, walking disaster area uh, where, you know, he's really pretty much ended up endorsing the idea that uh, the pandemic was engineered as part of some, you know, sort of conspiracy to institute a new world order, you know, whatever. Uh, I mean, I'm really not even paying that much attention to him these days because I think he's just, you know, gone completely, you know, round the bend or, you know, whatever. Uh, but, uh you know, even, uh, well, I mean, I, I don't need to tell you that some of the uh, people that Joe Rogan has amplified in this show um, are really, really, like, you know, people who are uh, way out there when it comes to scientific information. And, uh, I mean, I do think that the um, the, the vaccine skeptical uh, propaganda really is quite dangerous. I mean, the, just the idea, and I mean, I know that, you know, and I, I really don't mean to dump on Joe Rogan. I mean, I I don't think he, he sets out to be, uh, you know, someone who subverts the vaccination effort mm. or whatever. No, definitely not. Yeah, I mean, I've as you can imagine, I've been asked my opinion on this endlessly, and I've been on TV shows and radio shows and written in print about the whole thing, and I'm generally... Um, supportive of Joe and I mean he's he's been extremely generous to uh, to me and my colleagues he's been very very supportive and an enormous force for for good in the worlds of entertainment and comedy and podcasting on an individual level but even on a broader social level for all of his flaws I do think that he's general I, I make a distinction between some of these people in the alternate alternative media ecosystem who really are just persistent fire hoses of misinformation and they are willfully pumping out things that if they don't know are untrue, they should know are untrue. Whereas I see Joe as more of a a clown, a ringmaster, a, a um, you know, a curious puppy who is perhaps too credulous at times and doesn't have you know journalistic standards, and so is just doing is just chatting with people, and that can go off the rails, and that can you know yeah. that can exhibit his own biases and his own preference for conspiratorial thinking sometimes. But a, a person who's trying to deal with people in good faith and who's trying to 
do the right thing and is trying to be generally correct. Uh, again, that's not to excuse him, but I mean, I've, you know, everyone keeps asking me and keeps asking me to sort of throw him under a bus and I just won't, I just won't do it because I think there's a huge difference, but I, but let's wrap here with your thoughts about why he is unique and why even someone like Sam Harris, I think is unique in being a stand up person who has refused to, 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 I guess, go down the the crazy rabbit hole that you're writing about, because it is striking to me. I got an email from uh, someone who I don't know, which who was pointing out that I did an event with the so-called intellectual dark web people in Sydney that that went south, and uh, it was uh, oh. anyway. But but it was uh, at the time it was this illustrious collection of of people. It was uh, it was. Uh, Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, oh, Majid yeah. Nawaz, Douglas Murray, and Sam Harris, uh, and I was moderating it on a full day thing. And this person who was emailing me was saying, "Like, look at that rundown now. Look at that lineup of people." And this oh, person yeah. was saying, "I knew at the time that if you if you believed that wokeness was a sickness that was coming to take our entire society over." Then it was obvious to me. This this person was writing to me saying that that was uh, such a, a blinkered sort of privileged inside the bubble concern because this person lives in the southeast United States where it was like he was right. like this was obviously stupid right wing hysteria to me that li- who li- that liberals had b- bought into because they don't actually know what it's like inland from their mm. coastal bubbles uh, where wokeness is just you know not a thing out here. And this person was saying like it's completely unsurprising to him that that suspicion of wokeness has now ballooned into a you know a truly crazy suspicion of basically everything and the only standout exception yeah, no, to that, that is, is Sam that is very true in that group that is very true and you know i'm going to say that i i think to some extent the quote unquote you know woke establishment i think is to blame for um you know, for 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 sort of instigating uh, this kind of mistrust, because I do think that on some issues, uh, like even on issues related to science, I think there has been a tendency to kind of subordinate science to ideology that really does generate this um, uh, this very skeptical attitude, and I mean some of the uh, discourse around transgender issues, which, you know, and I should say, you know, obviously I fully support, you know, civil rights for transgender people. But when we have scientific magazines uh, trying to sell the idea that, you know, well, you know, there really isn't such a thing as sexual dimorphism and it's more complicated than that because, you know, what about the, you know, tiny percentage of people with, you know, congenital, chromosomal, or, you know, other, uh, you know, anatomical, uh, you know, abnormalities, and don't they really, like, call into question the existence of two sexes? Uh, No, they really don't, you know, and I think that's, you know, that kind of thing really makes people feel like, well, you know, science is being co-opted by ideology, and I think because of that, it's sort of easier for some people to believe that, you know, the scientific establishment uh, is playing politics with COVID. Although, again, my question would be like, why? There isn't anything particularly woke <laughs> about, you know, 
about COVID-19. I mean, as I pointed out, there isn't anything particularly woke about, for instance, calling for lockdowns or calling for, like, you know, really strict, uh, you know, policies to contain, you know, and mitigate the spread of the virus. I mean, I even pointed out in my newsletter that some of these measures uh, really went counter to certain progressive values. Like there were a lot of concerns that were expressed early in the pandemic that the lockdowns were really bad for working moms because, you know, because kids were not in school, you know, kids were not in daycare. And there were a lot of people saying that, you know, the effects of this uh, pandemic and the lockdowns are going to be really terrible for gender equality. So, I mean, this is really not a woke thing. I mean, there is no like woke agenda that is being pursued by uh, people who are saying that the COVID, or were saying from the beginning, that COVID-19 is something that needs to be taken very seriously. Um, And, you know, and and yet there there really was, I think, almost from the beginning, this sort of culture war, you know, polarization, where there were a lot of people on the right who, uh, you know, who have been trying all along to minimize this and to say that, well, you know, not such a big deal unless you're like really, really old or, you know, incredibly sick and, you know, otherwise you're going to be fine and you should just live your life as, uh, you know, as usual. And I mean, by the way, I, I always thought this this idea that we could, and this was, of course, the, the Great Barrington Declaration, that we can somehow, you know, isolate the... The, the 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 vulnerable and let everyone else lead a normal life i never really got that like how do you well, what do are you going to do like how are you um, so you're never going to see your grandparents in an age yeah, and I, I think like... the great Barrington <laughs> declaration actually suggested i'll have to go back and look it up i mean i think they actually suggested like moving all of the elderly and you know immunocompromised people into like you know, some sort of facilities <laughs> for the duration of like three or four months. Well, and, I mean, also for how long? Like, what happens after I mean, three or four months? Why be wouldn't a, it a libertarian thing? You know, but why wouldn't it be three or four decades? I mean, this thing is not going to is not going away anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, no, so Kathy, that's insane. I, I mean, and if you look at how many Americans, for instance, have pre existing conditions that make them vulnerable to COVID, you know, just well, yeah, the obesity and hyper, obesity and hypertension thing. I mean, you'd really have to like move. Well, you know, one third of the population into concentration camps. I think you I would mean, just that's have not very to, libertarian. <laughs> you would you would just have to create another another Mason Dixon line and uh, yeah, just sort of divide yeah, America so, no, into into civil I mean, war. Idea that you, could, you could only protect <laughs> so, the vulnerable. The fat um, people in the south can stay there protected, oh and the, <laughs> the, the skinny people in the north. <laughs> oh God, we're being very politically incorrect. <laughs> yes. Kathy, I don't know if I, we're offending conservatives or progressives more at this point. Kathy, I can't. I can't wait. I can't wait to read about your childhood in in uh, in Moscow. I'm going to yeah, have to let you go. Yeah, so and if I can just people... finish like one real quick point. Uh, so one uh, one uh, issue because I started saying something about Barry Weiss and I didn't want to leave this hanging. Just you know, uh, just to sort of uh, mm. randomly like do, I didn't want to do this like drive do a drive by. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but very so, quickly. Yeah, 60, so 60 I want to say I think she did some really good. Like she did some really good uh, round like the roundtable on mandates that you were a part of. That was really good but you know i did notice like in recent weeks uh there has definitely been a slant to a lot of what she runs in her newsletter that is kind of you know a little uh, sort of much more favorable to vaccine skepticism than 
uh, that I'm comfortable with. And that's especially ironic because, of course, the gist of her, uh, I mean, you probably know about her appearance on Bill Moore, where she did this, you know, oh, I'm done with COVID thing. And she was very frustrated that, you know, we were told that once uh, you got vaccinated, everything would be fine and you could just go and, you know, lead a normal life. And that didn't pan out that way. Okay. But I mean, if that is the, uh, and I think we're all, the vast majority of people are frustrated that it didn't pan out. Yeah. And I think all I'm of frustrated. Really I mean, I would certainly that, be frustrated you know, if I was living in California. Yeah, yeah. I think we're, we're all happy that we were York. sort of venturing outside and, you know, going to, you know, restaurants again and meeting up with friends. And then suddenly, boom, you know, we're back to, you know, <laughs> to mm. something much more uh, stringent. Um, yeah, I'm going to lose I'm going to lose this line in 30 seconds. So I have to love you. Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah, so I mean, you. just my, my point is that it's if, if you really want to go back to a normal life, vaccination is the key, obviously. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It's not an imposition. It's actually the so path to, to the to, path to, 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 to the back to normal. The sympathy for the vaccine uh, averse is uh, is just mystery. Kathy, thank you for joining us. Uh, Arc Digital is where people can find you. ArcDigital uh, dot dot media. You take care. Well, thank you. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Sepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.